Hi, everyone. Welcome to the G3X Conversation with Jan Masaoka. So without further ado, let me uh, introduce our speaker today. Jan Masaoka is the CEO of the California Association of Nonprofits, also known as Cal Nonprofits. It's a statewide policy agency, uh, policy alliance, and our voice for California nonprofit community in Sacramento. So it's a very important thing because without her, um, legislators don't have any voice telling them what we as a community need to make the community stronger. Jan is also a nationally recognized writer, researcher, speaker, and author of four very important books on our sector, as well as many articles. She was the G3X keynote speaker in 2018. So uh, if you could go down to your applause emojis or, or show your arms, let's welcome Jan Masoka. Welcome to 501c3BS. I'm your host, Sue Velasco, director of the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at Cal State Fullerton's Mihalo School of Business and Economics. Join me today as we debunk the myths of the social sector. We will cut down the weeds and clear your path for organizational growth. So is there, before I ask you any questions, is there anything you'd like to say as an opening thought? This would be more fun in person. <laughs> yes, it would. Yes, it would. I agree wholeheartedly. But on the other hand, no, we didn't have to. Nobody had to drive anywhere, so I guess it sort of makes up for it. It's a trade-off, and um, you know, I think uh, when you look at the the death toll mounting uh, for COVID, sometimes we get so into our our you know inconveniences, we forget that this is for a very important reason that we're distancing and we just have to do what we can just like they did in World War II and they had to hunker down and and other times in our history I think this is something we're going to be talking about for a long time okay before I get started with your questions I'm going to launch a poll and I just want to um, ask you the listeners to to take the take about 30 seconds to fill out this poll it's only two questions and I just want to kind of get the temperature of the room in terms of where you are. Uh, you know, post-COVID is not really true. We're still in COVID, but post the first wave of lockdowns, because we're now semi-locked down, but not as bad as we were back in March. So I'm just trying to see uh, where you guys are as a community. So it looks like, and we can see 75% of you are just doing a lot to overcome effects of the pandemic for your communities in some way, shape, or form. And it looks like um, most of you, a, th a third of you, 30, 31% of you have increased in proportion to the need. And some of you have dramatically decreased even though the need is higher in terms of your resources and revenue. So that looks like that's pretty even with two thirds there and then the, the rest are kind of somewhere else in there. but. I think this is really good uh, to see, for you all to see, and for me to see, and for Jan to see. So we did an informal poll back in April when we first did our first Zoom webinar on, on COVID. And we saw that about a third of organizations were doing a lot more with the same funds or less funding. And a third were effectively out of business because they rely on in-person interactions like theaters and museums, for example. Um, how, Jan, have you seen the recovery happening on the statewide level, since you have a, a more Hawkeye view of things than we do just in Orange County? 
Could I just ask everybody, please write your, not just questions in the chat box, but write your comments, right? Like things like, I agree with that, or you're completely wrong, or, you know, things like that. So we can, you know, or, you know, you know, uh, can I have part of that sandwich, you know, or something like that. So uh, we can make this a little bit more interactive than, than just <laughs> chatting away uh, in our respective rooms. Um, well, I think, you know, I think what we all know is that some nonprofits like food banks, health clinics, Meals on Wheels, people like that, domestic violence shelters are working at, you know, 200 times their usual capacity. Other people are completely shut down and, and everybody, there's people on every single part of that spectrum too. So, um, but certainly uh, it's not just the arts that are completely shut down. After school programs particularly come to mind. Um, many, not all, but many childcare centers are completely shut down. A lot of services to people with disabilities have been shut down. Um, so it, it is every place on the spectrum. So everybody is experiencing kind of different sets of different sets of issues. And I think you know, in some ways, you know, uh, funding, both government funding and foundation funding, has stepped up for people in in uh, essential services. Um, or at least in the most visible essential services. But there are a lot of things that are essential services that really aren't identified as that. Things like after-school programs, you know, and I, I was talking to one woman who runs a um, after-school program. They have about 400 staff. They've already laid off 123 of them. They expect to lay off 60 more. And she was saying, you know, we usually have 100 kids in a gym. What are we going to do? So, um, it's, it's, I'm not telling you anything new. I'm not telling anybody new. Um, and I, I like Laura's point about depleting our own mental health. Some of us didn't have that much to start with, you know, so uh, we're in even much, but actually, let me, you know, we just did a poll. Uh, we, Calum Provost did a poll. We just got the, finished getting, collecting responses late last week. We had about 1,100 responses. And, you know, you know what came out? This was really surprised. You know what just kind of lifted out of the results was, not poor, pitiful us, not how beleaguered we are, not how hard we're working, not how exhausted we are, but pride. I mean, people are really proud of what we're doing, whether wherever you are on that spectrum and whether you're completely redoing everything or whether you're just tweaking or whatever it is that you're doing, you know, and that was so great to see that, you know, we aren't we're not a group of people or a group of organizations that feel sorry for us. We're a group of people that just move forward. Jan, you know, there's a, a, a handful of people that I think of as geniuses in our sector, and they happen to all be women for some reason, and you're one of them. Well, I'm sure it's just a complete coincidence that they're women, you know. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, but you're definitely one of them. All Asian too, right? No, not at all, no. Too bad. Some of the people on this call agree with me, like Cecilia and Yumiko. Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. No, no, they're not all Asian, but they are all women, and they are some amazing people. And you're one of them. And if I were to come into your tent, and you were a um, a, uh, a fortune teller, mm -hmm. and I were to ask you, what's the future of the nonprofit sector in California look like? How do how do we see ourselves a year from now? when maybe there's a, a, a drug or a remedy or uh, some kind of a um, vaccine or something available where we can go back to some semblance of, of life as it was before, at least 
meet in person again and see a show or something. Um, what, what does it look like a year from now in our community, do you think? Well, you have to remember that, you know, in terms of predictions, I was a person who thought that Prince Charles and Princess Diana would get back together. So I have a very bad record on when it comes to uh, predictions. You know, I actually, I mean, I usually never agree with a single thing that Bill Gates said, but he did say something interesting the other day. He said, you know, things will be sort of back to normal by the end of 2021 for wealthy people and a lot <laughs> than that for poor people. And I think that uh, and that makes sense to me, whether or not there's a vaccine, um, things are already much easier and much back, much, uh, uh, much more manageable and much more back to normal for people of wealth. Uh, you know, people that are well to do or live in well to do neighborhoods. And, uh, that isn't new, but as we all know, kind of the inequality, particularly racial inequality, um, has that already existing has made the academic worse and the epidemic is making that inequality worse. So I think the, the main thing we're going to see is, you know, um, is those inequalities are, are reflected in the nonprofit sector. We work on them, but they're also reflected. And, you know, our, our big research report, which uh, came out just before the epidemic started, <clears throat> uh, shows, for example, that in some counties, in California, the nonprofit sector has eleven has fourteen thousand dollars per person living in that county. Fourteen thousand dollars per person, and in the, the lowest sector, which is Calusa, they have ninety seven dollars per resident. Now, Orange County is in the middle of that with twenty one hundred. All right, but fourteen thousand and ninety seven, you you couldn't say it more clearly. All right. And that's then the clearest differences are between, of course, this is not going to surprise you either, between rural and metropolitan, between predominantly white, predominantly people of color, predominantly poor, predominantly wealthy. So I think the biggest thing we're going to see um, is this, uh, this, this, uh, we're going to see this play out in the nonprofit community. So we're going to see the nonprofits that are in poor rural communities of color, not only, of course, but we're going to see much more bankruptcies and closures in those communities than we are in others. Um, and, and I think one, and I think one of the things I'm the most worried about is that um, a lot of the attention tends to be on individual organizations rather than on our sub on various kind of ecosystems. For example, you know, we know that theater is an ecosystem, right? You can't have great theater without also having high school theater and community theater and, you know, and equity theater and non-equity, right? So you have this kind of ecosystem of theater that works to, to bring us great theater. And this is also the case in childcare, right? You have a series of childcare institutions that support each other in different ways. Um, we're going to see our ecosystems disrupted. And it's, so it's going to have a much worse impact than just sort of the numbers of particular types of organizations going under. So I think that paying more attention to the ecosystems or the delivery systems in which we work is something that we can be doing now um, and seeing how, what's, what are the, who are the important players in our delivery system um, and how can we work with them to try to keep our little ecosystem strong, not just uh, working at individual by individual organization. Can you can you uh, expand on that a little bit? That last sentence you just said, uh, finding these 
players who can help us expand our ecosystem. Can well, you talk a little bit more about that? I wouldn't say expand. And I think this is happening naturally, right? But I'm just encouraging people to do more of it. And it's happening in a couple ways. So, you know, um, affordable housing people are getting together and saying, which of us are vulnerable? Okay. And what can others of us do to support them? Because it's about we are an ecosystem that's helping housing, not just each organization, right? We see, you know, gatherings of Latino executive directors and saying, you know, how can we support the kind of the strengthening of Latino organizations, not just my organization? And what, you know, what kinds of things can we do collectively as well? Call on foundations to support our ecosystem, not just my organization, for example. Couldn't you also couch that as strategic partnerships? Well, yeah, if we want to use a jargon word, yep. Or, you know, or, or strategic collaboration or strategic thinking or, yeah, let's throw them all in. Sure. But the point being that, and this was, I think I sent you the report I did on my research yes. project that strategic collaboration or partnerships or ecosystems, however you want to frame it, that was a really important reason why the people that succeeded the most during the last recession did so was because they were very good at mobilizing people to, towards their cause and seeing the bigger picture than their organization, seeing their mission dovetailing with other missions and creating those kinds of collaborations, exactly what you're talking about. Well, I think nonprofits are already in lots of collaborations. I mean, I think that, however, kind of looking at collective action around a delivery system, I think is a little bit different than, than a few organizations collaborating. You know, a friend of mine did a very big study in the last recession that was very multi-year study that was very interesting. And uh, she had I identified a set can't remember the numbers now, 50 or something like that of, of organizations uh, that had kind of closed in the recession and 50 organizations that had, had gotten through and she chose them for different sizes and all kinds of things like that. And then, so the question she was, and she looked, she did a lot of study about their 990s as well, over that period of time, as well as talking to people and, and kind of, she was hoping to see which strategies worked. Okay. And what do you think she found out? This is one of my favorite findings of all time. This is what she found out. Everything worked. <laughs> the people who tried strategic collaboration succeeded. The people who just doubled down on the way they did fundraising succeeded. The people who decided to stop doing that and do a different kind of fundraising succeeded. So I think we have to say nonprofits know what they, they know their particular circumstances and they know what strategy is going to be right for them as long as they think about it and act on it as opposed to sort of, you know, um, well, you know that American saying like uh, related to guns, like ready, aim, fire. So sometimes nonprofits, we have a tendency to be like ready, aim, 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 aim. That fails. So what advice can you give organizations as we're, you know, heading on the second half of this year with COVID? Well, uh Hard to, hard to generalize. It's like, what advice would you give the for-profit sector? You know, kind of depends if you're an airline or a dry cleaner, right? It's kind of different. Um, so I, I hate to generalize like that. I, we, another thing that we know, though, um, is that compared to the for-profit sector during an economic downturn, nonprofits lay off a lower percentage of people and we lower wages less. 
we keep wages more stable than the for-profit sector. So this is a good time to stay on your job um, as opposed to a, this is not a good time to decide, hey, I think I'm going to go work for Uber, you know, or Twitter or something like that. So we are, uh, in fact, more stable during an upturn, um, but then in, in, during a downturn. In an upturn, the for-profit sector adds jobs faster and increases wages faster. But in a downturn, we don't lay off as many people and we don't make as many pay cuts. That's a really great point. Mm-hmm. Oh, actually, you know, another interesting thing we also know from research about this is that um, in times of difficulty, nonprofits return to core services. And in times of prosperity, we're more innovative and more experimental. And that makes total sense, right? But it's, so it's something to embrace, not to be embarrassed about. Okay, that we are turning to whatever our core services are, right? That we're returning, I don't necessarily mean essential services by that. Whatever our core services are, those are the ones we're going to return to the tried and true, uh, the bread and butter. Uh, other times we're the sector of innovation, but maybe not right now. So I'm going to try hard today not to fight too much with you, even though I do like to no, spar with you sometimes. Much I know that's what. I know that's what we're interested in that. (laughs) We disagree on things. I know that's what makes a good podcast when we spar a little bit. But I'm going to say something, and uh, maybe you'll agree, maybe you won't. But based on what you just said, this is a great time for organizations to kind of try out new things, as like pilot programs. It's a great time to kind of experiment a little bit because if what you're working like, especially for we've seen this a lot with arts organizations and others that are kind of shut down. They're trying to find new ways to do things online, new ways to um, to interact with people in ways they couldn't before. And a lot of ways it's, it's giving them new programs that will live beyond COVID, right? So um, do you feel the same? Do you feel like this is a good time to do some kind of small, small pilots and experiment? You know, nonprofits are trying everything. So, you know, that's what we do. We should continue to try everything. But I'll tell you what, we don't have a lot of money to try new things. Right. Let's just be real about it. Um, if you have government contracts, and we know 30% of the nonprofit sector's money comes from government, and that's taking even not including hospitals or universities, those contracts, you know, our biggest point of advocacy has been trying to get flexibility in contracts. Um, I, you know... In any case, uh, um, so there's, you know, a lot of times, you know, that you don't, you, you just don't have the flexibility to the degree that we can. I think we are doing that. So uh, I'm going to ask one more question, and I would love it if our listeners could write questions into the chat box that we can ask you. We've gotten some great comments. Um, I'll, I'll read, I'll read you a couple of the comments because I don't want you to have to, uh, you know, read them all, but um People love your advice. Stay. So one person wrote, we do have to stay away from ready, aim, 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 aim. Another person wrote, collective action around delivery systems versus collaboration, good differentiation. Um, so my last question for you before we get to the audience questions is, you are our chief advocate in Sacramento for the state. How can we as a sector advocate more strongly for ourselves? Um, well, I don't have anything really new to say here. I think that, um, but a couple of things. I think 
first of all, I would really encourage everybody to join the coalition of your field. Okay, if you're an orchestra, you should join the uh, Association of California Symphony Orchestras. You know, if you are a food bank, you should join the Association of Food Banks. Um, what, whatever it is that you do, you should join those associations because, uh, because first of all, they will keep you apprised of what's important and what's coming down so that you don't have to track the 2,000 bills a year and they'll tell you what's going on and you'll know what needs to be happening happening. And then this app, right after that, you should join California Association of Nonprofits, our organization. You know, 40% of our funding comes from membership dues. Um, because I think that, you know, nobody has time to do a lot of stuff. Um, but coalitions are how we advocate um, because they save everybody time. Now, some counties also have kind of a, a California Association of Nonprofit, if you will, like a cross-field coalition in their counties. And, and they, not all of them, but many of them are extremely effective in getting government money, county money to nonprofits. And um, I, I, there isn't such a one, to my knowledge, um, in Orange County, but for example, uh, one in San Francisco uh, earlier this year got the county to agree to do a 3.5 across the board cost of living, cost of doing business increase in every city contract with a nonprofit, right? So when, when, we, when advocates like them and like us, when we move the government needle just a little bit, we move millions of dollars, right? So the fact is that um, important advocacy is partly about money and money is at the county level and it's at the state level and at the federal level. So uh, we need to advocate in all, in all areas. So you would like to see someone form an Orange County advocacy organization for nonprofits that would well, work through you with your organization? Have, well, I know all of you guys have, don't have that much to do, <laughs> right? So you're you know, maybe I could file my nails a little bit less and start a countywide coalition. Yeah, I'll do that in <laughs> my time. Um, I, I think that, you know, that, that some of them in the state are very effective. Some of them are less effective. But I do think that uh, after the California state budget is passed, then it's incredibly important to advocate at the county level. In some counties, like Alameda County, for example, 14% of the entire county budget goes to nonprofits. In other counties, it's 1%. All right. So the fact is that the state money goes to the county and the county decides whether to, to contract it with nonprofits or not. So I, I do think that, you know, the importance of county advocacy uh, really can't be overstated. That's you know, a, um, long, like a hundred years or so ago, when I was I was a research assistant um, at a nonprofit research institute, and we were doing this uh, three-year project, <clears throat> and that project was looking at community mental health centers, CMHCs, across the country. And the question was, what makes some successful and some not? And so we looked at all these variables, like does it work better to have a medical director at the top or does it work better to have a business type person at the top? They work better in rural, metropolitan, or suburban areas. Do they have to get to a certain size, dumpty, dumpty, dump, right? Okay, what makes some successful and others not? What correlates with success? And then I quit that job. Okay. And then like five years later, I ran into my executive director and I said, Oh, I'm so happy to see you. What was the answer? 
And you know what she said? She said, the amount of time the executive director spends in the state capitol. And the fact is, is that advocacy is not just the right thing we do for our clients. It's a business strategy. Mm. Th- those are all really good points. Well, you know, you say, you, you know, if people, you know, done filing their nails, they might go and start that. But mm-hmm. my mother used to say that whenever you want something, you just tell people what you want and say, and God will provide, and then somebody will show up and do it for you. So maybe you well, never know. Well, does that mean that she had her son do a lot of household chores? That's a pretty smart mom, if you ask me. It worked on me anyway. Uh, I was a bit of a mama's boy, though. So, okay, this is a question from Harriet Ann Goldman. Mm -hmm. Do you think there will be funding support for professional development? The community leadership program I run will likely lose participants in the near future because government agencies, as well as nonprofits, will likely not have the funds to send key staff at, uh, at a time when the need is great because they've been on the, on the front lines for the COVID crisis. Do you, so again, the question is, do you think there will be funding support for professional development? No. And I think because there has never been funding support for professional mm-hmm. development, just tiny little trickles, okay? Um, so, uh, Gosh, you know, crisis is not usually when you see people making smart investments in long-term development. Let's be real. The, You're so uh, cynical. <laughs> I, I, that's not cynical. That's observational. Now, I would say that in I would say that in the capacity building field over the last fifteen years, the big story has is twofold. First, it's leadership development. Okay, they don't, as opposed to professional, it's leadership development. And the second thing is it's, 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 it's delivered by foundation chosen consultants and their own staff. So it used to be that like not foundations would give a nonprofit money and say something like, so find a strategic planning consultant you feel good about. Now they hire a strategic planning firm and they say, we're going to pick 10 nonprofits for you to do strategic plans for um, and, and extend that to all the other kinds of things. Or they say, and used to be saying, here's some money so you can take some workshops and classes. And now they're saying, we're going to put on workshops and classes and you can come to them. So that, I, I think that that's been a very unfortunate development because I think it tends to, um, I think it tends to, you know, work for organizations that are kind of culturally and mentally in more sync with the kinds of people that are at the foundation. It doesn't allow for kind of the same diverse. There are different schools of thought about boards. There are different schools of thought about fundraising. And I like to see people exposed and participate in thinking that through rather than just hearing the solutions that that particular foundation hires consultants to frame. But uh, all right, I'll, now you and I can spar a little bit. But I still think it's really important, even if you're right, there are different ideas about what makes good board development and what makes good staff development. But don't you think just getting professional development in terms of leadership development is important regardless of which to say I was against leadership development. I hope not. Okay, good. I'm pro leadership <laughs> development. I'm pro professional development, but I like to see just like I like to see nonprofits get to pick who they're gonna get it from. Yeah, I know. I agree. I think um, that's really crucial. I had made because I run a CEO training program and some of my students are in the audience here today. But 
um, because that's part of what we do at the Gianeshi. I've made the case to funders that, yeah, if you're going to give people funding to help them through COVID, wouldn't it be great if at least a small part of that was for developing leadership within the organizations? Because it's really important for them to be uh, good leaders if they're going to do the most with your funding. And for the most part, I'm not sure that that message has gotten through, but um, but I think there is a case to make, make for it. Oh, yeah, there's definitely a case to make for it. But I would also say that we at nonprofits are very poor at leadership development or at professional development. We tend to equate it with spending money on people outside the organization. We tend to say, oh, it means going to training, it means going to conferences. It means having consultants. And I, I, I really have a problem with sort of the way that capacity development building has been so identified with outside help rather than in ways to utilize the organization's structures and hierarchies that are already in place. Well, that's kind of that fundraising industrial complex we talked about a couple of years ago too, right? I mean, that's certainly true in fundraising. Well, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, there, I mean, fundraising is its own interesting industry, definitely. Well, I don't see any other uh, – Victoria Torres made the comment that raising money for professional development and training was always – was never easy even in, when times were great. I don't see any other questions. Do we have any other questions here? Okay, here comes one. Many of us have county funding here in OC, but it can end up hampering us from doing any advocacy for fear of getting fired by the county, in quotes. Um, have others faced that conflict? Um, well, of course, um, but I think that um, it's not a true um, dichotomy that way. Um, so the um, uh, so I think that you know, for example, um, well, I'm trying to figure out sort of where to start on that question. You know, we we are a vendor. One aspect of thinking about it is we're vendors to government, and they know that we can do a lot of things. We can do TB testing a lot better, a lot more effectively than the county hospital can. Um, let's just just to pick one. All right. So the fact is, is that if we get money for TB testing, one of the things we should do is see ourselves as allies with the health department in getting more money for TB testing. Right. So if we change our frame, I think that we actually end up finding allies with our funders. And the second thing is, you know what, they're grownups and they can you know, sometimes they're grownups and, you know, sometimes we're grownups and, you know, we can have that discussion. But let me just tell you the other thing about about government is that they are they are in some way or another beholden to the community. And if they fire us and we get 50 angry parents to the board of supervisors money, they rehire meeting, they rehire us. OK, because we have community support and we can't be afraid to use that. Well, to your point about us being vendors, uh, other vendors for the government, they have lobbying groups, huge lobbying groups that, you know, if if you know you hear these people getting these contracts for vaccines that have never produced a vaccine because they have friends and lobbying groups. Mm -hmm. So we should be able to do the same. And we're not lobbying. I mean, it's against our charter to lobby, but we can be advocates without lobbying. Actually, we can lobby. It's kind of a myth that nonprofits are legally barred from lobbying. We can lobby. Um, we can lobby 
just to shut, there's a lot of fine print here, okay? But basically, you can lobby up to 5% of your activity. And if you fill out a certain form, 5768 every year, you can lobby up to 20% of your budget. So, you know, that's a pretty significant amount. Those are, that, that's completely legal. So in addition to advocacy. Um, but I mean, I know what you mean. And, you know, I just read this article this morning about this, um, you know, this fake nonprofit, you know, that, that got, that, People gave six six what was it sixty six million dollars sixty five million dollars to that they used in bribes mm. in Ohio and I thought you know you can probably buy a lot of stuff with sixty million dollars in bribes so here's the thing what we have is we have sixty million people in services and we have to get them to those county supervisors meetings and they'll stand up for us absolutely I I know I've been in situations where funding was cut from my organization and people showed up at city council and the funding was magically restored. You know, it's yeah, one of the things you can't stand up to when you're a politician is voters. Absolutely. And, you know, just, you know, in California, one in every 14 jobs is at a nonprofit. Okay, that's really big. One in every 14 jobs is at a nonprofit. We employ more people than construction, right? Mm -hmm. So when we stop thinking of ourselves as kind of just like four people in my organization, we are a big voting block. And the reality is, is that like, you know, if everybody who worked or volunteered and say the environment voted, we'd have better environmental policies, right? If everybody who worked and volunteered in you know, childcare voted, we have more childcare money. And um, so I do think that the importance of our people power as voters and as people that go to meetings is just enormous. And, uh, and we shouldn't neglect that. You, you, you bring up a great point about how many people work in our industry. And um, why have we never been able to get more political power, given the fact that we control such a large block of people? If only we controlled them. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's the problem. We don't control them. <laughs> I wish everybody was a little puppet, you know, and, and I could say. <laughs> so, well, because we've been under the misconception that it's illegal to get people to vote. I think that's a big part. Getting people to vote, t driving them to the polling place, registering them to vote, educating them about the issue, taking positions on ballot positions, saying yes on 16, you know, yes on 15, no on X, Y, Z, right? Those are all things we legally can do and morally we should do. So I do think that's one reason. But I would also say, you know, this is something like, so... Our lobbyist, who's just fantastic, Jennifer Fearing, so she used to be the lobbyist for the Humane Society of California. And one of the things she said when she came to work for us is she said that, you know, she said, when I was working for the Humane Society for nine years, I lobbied for dogs, I lobbied for cats, I lobbied for kangaroos, I lobbied for whales, and I never actually lobbied for the Humane Society. And I think that's what a lot of us are doing. We're advocating and we're lobbying for the kids in our child care center, for the women in our domestic violence program, for the people, for the immigrants who are having immigration legal problems, but we're not lobbying for our nonprofit organizations. And I think that we need to be clear about that and getting out the vote for our nonprofits, not just for our causes. Uh, someone made the comment, Europe does a much better job of providing safety net for citizens. Has anyone studied the need and activity 
of nonprofits in Europe as compared to the United States? Uh, there are a lot of studies um, that look at com comparing nonprofits around the world. Um, and it's hard to compare because societies are so different. You know, um, it only became legal to register as a non in Japan, it, it only became legal to register as a nonprofit corporation 20 years ago. You couldn't exist as one before that. So, I mean, that just shows what completely different, like, environments people are working in. I mean, I think that, you know, um, uh, Canada, you know, which is not in Europe and is much closer to us, you know, um, also has a much stronger safety net, as do many even developing countries, not only wealthy countries. And so, um, uh, but... Um, you know, I think nonprofits are have a role to play in safety net, but we also have a role to play in civil rights and democracy. And so, um, so anyway, I'm, I can't make any generalizations or conclusions about Europe. I just don't know enough about it. The only thing I maybe know about it is I'm not going to get to visit anywhere so. <laughs> <laughs> soon, right? Another question is: How can nonprofits whose core work is not to get out the vote but contribute to that effort? Oh, I love that question. So, you know, one of the things that we nonprofits can do is, th is things that are so easy to do. Like, so, for example, my, I talked to one of our members who's the executive director of our Meals on Wheels. Okay. They put a register to vote on every single, on every single tray. Okay. That doesn't take that. They don't have to go out door to door. They're already door to door. Right. Um, you know, Theaters are sending, you know, they're sending mailings with people. With every every mailing that they're sending, that's a fundraising mailing. They're also sending information on how to register for vote, to vote, and what the people should be looking at in terms of voting. So I think the important thing for us is to include it in our work rather than make it one more thing that we want to try to do. So what are the big issues that your organization is working on right now? Is there is there some legislation that you're working on right now well we lost one this morning um this is a three-year fight that we have been working on to uh, regulate online fundraising platforms like paypal gofundme amazon smile all of those okay and uh we've been working with the attorney general's office on developing regulations kind of very basic regulations for these platforms and it was held today in appropriations committee um and um, which means it's stalled for this year. Um, and, you know, this is a bill that affects every single nonprofit and every single person who gives money online. So we're really disappointed um, that that's happened. But, you know, we are against we are up against extremely well funded uh, opposition on this matter. And um, just to clarify, is this is this a bill to regulate how when somebody says that money's going to charity, how much? they can give or what percentage or what, no, what is the example, bill for? It's requiring, it's requiring these platforms to do, um, to disclose ahead of time how much they're charging and how much is coming out of the amount. Uh, so that if you give a hundred dollars, you know, ahead of time, how much is actually going to go to the nonprofit right now. There's a lot of deception going on. So mm -hmm. for example, they might say, we don't charge anything. Okay, but what they aren't telling you is the credit card company is charging you all these other people. So actually, it's ending up being seven and a half percent. But because the only message you got was we're not charging anything, you think it's all going. So we feel that that's not 
that doesn't increase donor confidence um, and that should, they have to disclose all the fees. And another thing is we have, we have hundreds of complaints from our members about these platforms taking months and months to process donations. And so we're saying can't do that. has to be in a more reasonable amount of time. So it's those kinds of things. So we've been working on that just this morning. Um, we lost that one, lost it for this year, maybe not forever, but we lost it. I think, you know, we've been also working very hard on uh, this one got stalled in large part this year also, but in large part because of COVID um, and the um, uh, legislature choosing not to take it up because of uh, it wasn't COVID related enough. And that was a bill on bringing some transparency to donor advised funds. On the bill, on the bill you lost this morning, somebody's asking who was funding the opposition to it. Is would that would be you know PayPal and the big companies? Yeah, right. So, um, yeah. So the um, you know, and we have had literally, I mean, so many meetings with PayPal and with Facebook, and I mean, gosh, all these people. Um, Anyway, we had a we had one meeting at PayPal headquarters, and um, they have a whole PayPal gift shop. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, literally, like kind of like a gift shop, like you have at say a museum. You know, with like you know uh, T-shirts. You know, and this was at Christmas time, so they actually had PayPal um, Christmas or crystal Christmas ornaments. So um, you know, kind of. Um, well, it's good to know they're making money, and many they've diversified. You know their business model, I guess. <laughs> so, um, uh, but in any case, I would say that right now, some of the other bills, a bill that got moved forward today that we've been working very hard on, is a bill of rights uh, for student borrowers. Um, you know, there are 160,000 nonprofit employees with student debt in California. That's a lot. Okay. And we know that student debt particularly makes it harder for us to keep younger people, women, first-generation graduates, people from lower economic backgrounds, people from communities of color. It makes us harder to keep them, um, not to mention just being mean. Right? And, uh, you know, and a lot of this is a lot of this is debt that was kind of foisted and wrangled on to people who were kind of right at the edges of deception from the for-profit universities. So, we really believe uh, this has been a big important issue for us in supporting the nonprofit workforce. So we're happy that student debt, some student debt things, have moved forward. Now, two years ago at the G3X conference, you told us about a program that I was not aware of until then. I've been telling my students students since mm -hmm. that if you work for a nonprofit for 10 years, you can get your debt forgiven. Can you tell us more about that program? Isn't that awesome? Yes, it's called the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. And if you go on our website, calnonprofits.org, um, uh, we have a whole student debt toolkit um, that you can use to help you get your look at your student loan forgiven. Now, I have to say that um, the Trump administration uh, right now is doing everything that they can do to prevent processing. All right. Yeah. So there are, there are thousands of people that have signed up, have enrolled and are qualifying for student loan forgiveness, but there, I'm just exaggerating here. Okay. But you know, they're processing like one a month. All well, right? the same thing's happening with student teachers too. 
Yes. So the fact is, but that does still means the law is still in place. Okay. It's, it's believed by the legal community that if you enroll now, that your claim will be honored, even if the law is overturned in the future, because you enrolled at a time when the law was in place. Um, and, and, um, uh, so it, and these years will count towards the 10 years. Okay. So, um, it, even though we're extremely discouraged and angry about the lack of processing at the Department of Education, nonetheless, we still think it's important for people to enroll in the program. And, you know, there's a sort of a mythology that it's just for people that are nurses or something like that. It's not, it's for anybody who works for a 501c3 organization. You know, you could be the bookkeeper at a museum, you know, you can be a nurse, but you can be all kinds of different roles and all kinds of different organizations. Is there some uh, caveat to that? I think there's a couple of quali- uh, disqualifications, there's right? Some qualifications. For example, if you have the loan from your parents, it won't pay your parents back. All right. You have to have, you know, you have to have gotten it from a certain type of federal loan. Um, but all that information is in our nonprofit student debt toolkit. So somebody's asking the name of this program, but if they want to know more, they can go to your website and look up the student debt kit, correct? Yeah, I'm typing it in. It's called the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, and you can see it at our website, townlandprofits.org. And it's in a PDF, so you can download it. Um, And there's kind of, it has tips for you as an individual person with student debt. And it also has some stuff that uh, HR directors and executive directors should do for their staff. Because you know what? A lot of times executive directors aren't aware that their staff have student debt. You know, for example, they themselves may not have student debt. And it's there's a stigma about talking about student debt. So <laughs> jump up and say things like, yeah, I have $85,000 in student debt. So, you know, I do think we need to be educating our, our nonprofit leadership um, about this issue. Well, I, I would also tell our listeners that you have a lot of other great things on your website, like some really great reports about the nonprofit community in California. And um, I find your reports to be very useful in many, many ways. So thank you for those. Sure. Thanks. You know, one of the, the main ones that I quoted those statistics before are all from our, our economic study, which is called Causes Count. And you can find that on our website as well. You know, one of the things I wanted to mention from that study that I don't think has gotten very much airtime in the sector, and that is that, you know, we are in a 15-year decline in volunteerism in California. You know, 15 years ago, we were 34th in the country in volunteerism rates. Now we're at 47th, right? So um, I, I, I sometimes compare volunteers to bees. You know, you kind of didn't think that much about them until now we're reading about bee apocalypses and stuff like that. And we're realizing how important they are. And I think kind of similarly, um, volunteers are represent 22% of the nonprofit workforce in terms of hours. And we need to be waking up to, uh, to volunteer issues. Well, it's coming up on three o'clock. I'm just asking if we have any last questions. Do you do you see work in racial equality or racial equity? Sorry, informing uh, an organization's mission, bake, baking DEI into the work of nonprofits. Well, there's there's no question that there's a lot more kind of awareness of racial equity matters, particularly around African-Americans these days than there has been in the past. And, um, and 
what I think is still an open question is whether it's something that will genuinely get acted on or it will be something that everybody just yakety yaks about for like a year and then it fades away. And I, I think that we don't know the answer to that question. What we do know is a lot of people are making statements and I am not yet seeing either money or political action behind most of those statements. So that concerns me a lot. So, for example, we've seen almost every foundation issue some kind of statement about how important racial equity is and Black Lives Matter, but we haven't really seen them change who they're funding. Um, and uh, we haven't seen, we've seen a lots of mainstream organizations and corporations issuing statements like that, but we haven't seen them supporting the defunding of police. So for me, um, uh, jury's still out, guys, on whether this is just going to be something that everybody talks about or whether it's going to be something we're going to do, do something about. John made the point that we've seen, uh, oh, he just moved on me. Uh, John made the point that we've seen a decrease in our long-term volunteers and an increase in short-term volunteers. People mm -hmm. seem inclined towards drive-by volunteering, even pre-COVID. Uh, someone else asked, why is, or Cecilia asked, why is volunteerism down? Any statistical reason? Um, I, I would say that we, a lot of people have theories about why volunteerism is down, and we don't really have evidence for any of them, right? So I just think that they're all probably part of the picture, right? So uh, all of these reasons. So one is, you know, for example, more women working more, right? And women have long been the kind of the backbone of the volunteerism workforce. You know, uh, some people feel that student volunteerism, forced volunteerism is making people less likely to volunteer as adults. Um, some people think it's making people more likely to, to volunteer as adults. Um, uh, some people are saying that, you know, as this, as, uh, this person has mentioned that some, uh, that John is saying, you know, that some people are seeing this more like people want to do kind of short-term volunteering, kind of no long-term commitments. What other people are saying, seeing is that people want to make long-term commitments, but in smaller doses. Uh, like I talked to the director of one museum, she was saying, you know, they actually have more docents than ever. This is pre-COVID, right? Just before COVID. They have more docent volunteers than ever. But docents used to be willing to do four days a week, and now they're willing to do one, right? So um, that doesn't mean they have a shorter, not sort of the drive-by thing, but is great number of hours. So I think all of those things are coming into play. It's hard to know what exactly it's about. Um, uh, just like, you know, it was hard to know why all the bees were dying until we started studying them. Uh, we nonprofits need to take this more seriously as something that's happening. We have a high school student in the audience who also is the founder of an organization. She said that volunteers are decreased due to the increased academic competition. Whenever I interview someone, especially a high schooler, about volunteering, the only question that they ask is, will I end up in a good school if I volunteer? <laughs> Yes, uh, absolutely. Not yeah. only will you end up in a good school, but you know, you'll have a better paying job after college and you'll meet the love of your life. I mean, let's you tell them all that, right? right <laughs> yes. Go for it. Absolutely. Um, we've had an increase in volunteerism. This is another uh, Dana saying in her organization, they've had an increase in volunteerism in all age groups in the past several years. We had about 500 active volunteers last year. Good for you, Dana. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yumiko said, we've, 
We've had mixed results with student volunteerism. Some love it while others want to know if it will lead to some benefit for them, like a job when they graduate from school. So, you know, I have two daughters. Uh, they both did mandatory volunteer project when they were in high school. One of them continues to volunteer a lot. The other one doesn't volunteer at all. At all. So I feel like kind of, I got 50-50, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know yeah. it's a small sample, you know, but uh, there you go. That sounds like what you get when you have daughters or sons, you know, like half of them want to be just like you and the other half want to rebel against you until they're your age. Wait a minute. I don't have any that want to be like me. What did I do wrong? <laughs> I bet that's not true. Well, I think, I, think volunteer, I want to say that I think that um, uh, this volunteer is something, you know, if we look there, uh, um, Nonprofits mobilize the equivalent of 300,000 full-time jobs in volunteers. Okay, 300,000. All right, that's really a lot of people, right? And if you take all the hours of paid staff and all the hours of unpaid staff and you put them together, 22% of those hours are volunteer hours, right? And um, so, uh, and volunteering um almost most of the volunteering is taking place in core services okay so there's sort of a myth that most volunteering is sort of on the fringes of things um but in fact most volunteering is in core services and i think that that's an important thing for us to remember victoria made the comment that uh catch a fire says that skills-based volunteering is up yeah, and that's well, the point you just made well Skills, I have a problem with the term skills-based on volunteering, all right, because no offense to people that are skilled, but it implies that only professionals are skilled. Hmm. Holding the hand of somebody who's dying, to say that that's unskilled, watching an autistic child for a day, saying that that's unskilled, all right, that offends me very, very deeply. I don't like it. It's not fair. And I think, and I had just, I really object to that. And it implies that uh, people who are not professionals, like architects or consultants, are unskilled. And I really would like people who use that term to use something different. Can, can I just say, please write your letters to Catch a Fire, not to the Gianneschi Center have, or Jan Masoka? I have complained <laughs> to Catch a Fire, I complained to all of them. So, um, Jan, when you say that uh, 22% of their time, you know, if, on an average is volunteering, do you think the 80-20 rule applies that like that 20% of them are doing 100 hours and the rest aren't doing any at all? That's a good question. You know, I'm kind of, there's kind of a, I'm one with, I'm part of a small kind of national working group on the issue of volunteerism because um, we think that there's some uh, we need a public policy agenda for volunteerism, and there has been kind of a vacuum of leadership on this topic. You guys are in Orange County where there's in one OC, but I have to tell you that in the last 10 years, two-thirds of California's volunteer centers have closed. Mm. Right. And they, they all, most of them opened under George Bush with the with the Colin Powell project, right? The the Points of Light project, right? Yeah, no points. Um, actually, most of them came out of United Ways um, quite a bit earlier than Colin Powell's effort. Um, 
so, I mean, that's just one example of another symptom, right, is the volunteer centers going away. And that the points of uh, the uh, hands-on networks have also been kind of new and sprung up in some areas. So, I mean, just like in any field, there's some movement around different organizations springing up and others kind of dying off. But I do think we have uh, not just a this issue about bees dying off, but also we, we haven't had kind of the, the policy policy matters, uh, public policy on volunteerism has kind of gotten taken over by AmeriCorps and National Service. And, you know, National Service is really uh, an important idea and an interesting idea, but it's not volunteerism. And AmeriCorps people will tell you exactly that anytime you ask. They are not volunteers, they're paid. Um, and uh, and so, for example, you know, almost all of the staff in the volunteerism offices now in state governments, including our own, are focused on AmeriCorps as opposed to supporting community volunteerism. That's a really good point. Well, I think we're at three o'clock. Is there any last comments you'd like to make, Jan? Um, well, try not to let the wildfires and COVID and the, you know, world economic <laughs> It does feel like the end of times from time to time, doesn't it? Like every once in a while, you know, I feel like, uh, do I need to get the bomb shelter ready? (laughs) I think that we are at a, um, I think we're at a turning point in in world history and it's something I, I, you know, one of the questions you sent me and sent me in advance are a lot of nonprofits going to close and I would just have to say yes. You know, a lot of new ones are going to open too, but a lot of them are going to close. And, you know, um, it's, but I want us to remember that first of two important things about that. So one is that, you know, when the first steel mill closed, right, people said, oh, they were badly managed anyway, right? But then when more and more steel mills started to close across America, right, we realized something else is something much bigger is happening. When nonprofits close, it's going to be really easy to say, oh, they were well managed. They didn't do this or that. But, you know, we're going to see enough go on and say that something is bigger happening. Our industry is being restructured and we need to think about it differently. And the second thing I really want us to remember is that even though we can be worried about a lot of individual organizations, and I am, I'm also not worried about nonprofits, you know, we're going to see dance theaters closed, but I am not the least bit worried about nonprofit dance, right? We're going to see childcare centers closed, but you know what? Nonprofits have always and will always step up to provide childcare. So I, I think we need to, to just remember that, you know, collectively, um, uh, we are going to prevail. Thank you for that helpful note to end on. I like that. Um, and and I do feel that too, and I feel like there's a lot of opportunity in crisis that we can that we can use, and and there's a lot of hope in this as well. But somebody asked the question of where will they find the podcast? I will turn this into a podcast on our feed, which is 501c3bs is the name of our podcast, and everybody here will get our e-blast uh, if you haven't already been getting it. And the e-blast will tell you about what podcasts are coming up each week. Just make sure you don't unsubscribe or send us to your spam folder. This is the (laughs) California State University Fullerton Gianeshi Center is where it's coming from. So that's something you can look forward. And uh, if you don't like our podcast, just unsubscribe. That's fine. Okay. And um, 
Thank you so much, Jan, for being a part of our conversation and for kind of replacing our conference this year because we didn't, we weren't able to do the conference in August and we will be hopefully doing it in January. And if not, then, then we'll just have a bigger one next year. But I do appreciate you coming and um, every couple of years, you know, get getting to, to, to duke it out with you a little bit is always fun. And you are one of the most amazing people I know in our industry. So thank you. I just put my email address too in the in the chat box if anybody wants to email me. Awesome. Yeah, because you're not busy enough, right? You're filing your nails. You want to answer more emails. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks to everyone and have a great okay. rest of your day. Thank you for listening to 501c3BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. I'm your host, Sue Velasco. 501c3BS is sponsored by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Gianneschi is spelled G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. That's G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First 100 Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian choro group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.